That was like uh, taking the end of the song, turning it into a prayer, and uh, putting a harmony to it and sound to it. Uh, beautiful to hear your voices and to hear faith in this room, in this place. Um, and if any of you are distracted by, by my boot, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. I might tip a little bit, so if you can just all tip with me, we'll be fine. Um, but, uh, and it's detachable. It's not permanent, so um, it goes away at some point, <clears throat> the doctor says. Um, and, you know, we learned last week, walking with a limp, right? Learning, so I took Ken literally. <clears throat> Apparently, y'all didn't, but that's okay. Um, and uh, we're going to start this morning by turning into the Old Testament and looking at a passage that I have found very dear for many years. In 2003, in fact, it was my first year, end of my first year of college at the Master's College, and I noticed that a lot of students were picking up uh, new Bibles. Uh, there was this translation called the English Standard Version. Uh, it was kind of hot and popular, so I was like, I want to be hot and popular. Uh, and so, so I was like, I'm going to go buy a, a brand new Bible. I'm going to get like a nice one though. And uh, it was, I felt like I was using my, my responsibility and my independence as a freshman in college. And so, um, so I, bought, I bought this Bible, and uh, it was back uh, quite, quite a ways ago. And, uh, and, and I had a box around it, and I told myself, I will never get rid of this box. I'm going to keep this Bible in such good condition, and I don't know where the box is uh, today, but, uh, but I, I, I've read through it since multiple times, marked it up, uh, written in margins, drawn uh, underlines, uh, dark underlines, um, box things, make connections, uh, just different notes. Um, outlines that I've heard in sermons, whether it be in chapel or church or class or other places. And it's just become a very dear uh, book to me. And uh, in fact, there's a lot of things that, um, that I have that are material possessions that I, uh, that I, that I prize, but out of, out of most of them, I'm not talking people here, uh, but most things that I own that are physical, material things, if, this, if something happened to this Bible, I'd, I'd cry like a baby. I would really be sad um, because it's just been uh, almost kind of like a, a little bit of a symbol of just time with the Lord, time with the Lord and learning, hearing from him. Uh, in fact, uh, that box that I had <clears throat> that kept this Bible safe for a little while, um, I opened it up and on the inside of it, I wrote uh, the words, show me your glory on the inside. And it was from a passage in Exodus 33 uh, that I remember reading, and uh, it just became so clear to me that when I meet with the Lord, I don't just want to learn information. I don't just want to read a book. I, I've never really been fascinated with <clears throat> reading as a kid, and, uh, and yet I found a book that fascinated me. I found a subject that, that arrested my soul, and it was actually reading in order to behold the glory of God. And, and that became uh, really a prayer for me as I opened my Bible, as I approached my times with the Lord, open book, just talking with him, open heart, uh, whatever he had to tell me or say to me, I wanted to hear it and I wanted to respond. And so time with God, with his word open became very precious and my prayer became, show me your glory. Today, I want to attempt to teach you how to pray the same prayer. Please show me your glory. I pray, show me your glory. 
And what I want to do is, because this is tucked back into the Old Testament, and maybe some of you are a little unfamiliar with, um, you know, the difference between Egypt and Canaan, or, or you know, what rivers are significant, or um, it, it all seems like a desolate wilderness there in Israel. And uh, what I want to do is, is uh, do the best job that I can to almost kind of like fly back uh, into that place of the world in a very different time than today, almost kind of like a, a drone, drone time lapse over thousands of years, and go back and go out of Egypt I kind of pull up out of Egypt and, and, and begin kind of just flying toward uh, this and over this desert wilderness, the south, uh, southwest of the land of Canaan, which is modern Israel today, but um, kind of the Sinai Peninsula. And, and I want to go to a particular mountain with you. And so in a way, think of it as a creative mental hike we get to go on. And I want to go there because I think it'll be very helpful for you to understand the context of why we are there, where we are at, and what's going on in that place. And then from there, I don't want to stop at some mountain that's in the middle of the uh, wilderness a couple thousand years ago. What I want to do then is just fly forward and, and go way beyond and go into a time and a place where the person and work of Jesus became ultra clear. And we can just go there and look to him, not so much Moses on a mountain, but Jesus, who spent his years ministering and had some important times where he was on his own mountains, making revelations to his people, us. And as Hebrews 1.3 says, Jesus Christ, speaking of him, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So tucked into this prayer of show me your glory is not just a really unique and sweet relationship that Moses had with God and we can go, oh, wow, he's a great example. But it's actually a very personal prayer for each of us. Now, we don't go to a mountain, we don't expect a theophany or something kind of really like blow you out of the water kind of experience. You go to the scriptures and you find a man. You find God in flesh. And you find the radiance of the glory of God because Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. Sometimes we need a really ultra clear, just very vertical message that really doesn't have to do with the clutter of earth and even really relationships around us and just go straight heavenward. And that's what I want this morning to be. So it'll be a little bit of a neck work on us as we think just about who God is and as we consider theological truths, biblical truths about God. And it will hopefully impact and affect not just the way that you think about him, but the way that you live for him and worship him and bring him glory. So today, it's just you and God. I don't want you to be distracted. I don't want you to get busy in your mind about other things around you. Just you and God. Straight out of your seat, you and him. What comes into your mind if it's just you and him? What do you think of him? Have you thought of him recently? Has he played a vital role in your life lately? Do you feel distant 
from him? Has he done something that has made you mad? You're at odds because of something that he has done. Could you care less about God right now in your life? Or is there no greater desire in your heart right now and in your life than to be as near as you can to him? When I bring up God, what comes to your mind? It's going to be very important because a lot of us have a lot of things in our mind about God. None of us have the perfect picture of God in our minds because he is incomprehensible and he is eternally great. And so our life is a lifetime. Those of us by faith, studying God's word, looking to God, it is a lifetime of correcting our thoughts about God and getting them more in alignment with who God truly is. Not as we want to see him, not as the world portrays him, not as our experience causes us, sometimes bullies us to think of him but as he thinks of him. That's what we want. So this morning, very unique time, I think, would be a very important subject, none greater, and that is to let God speak for himself about himself. He is both this morning the speaker and the subject of our text, and so turn with me to Exodus 34, Specifically, 34. In Exodus 34, and we'll be looking at our, our text, the portion I just want to draw lines around and kind of uh, get our attention on, at least for the majority of our time, will be verses 5 to 8, 5 to 8, right in the middle of Exodus 34. And I want to give you uh, from this text five ways to see the glory of God. Five ways to see the glory of God so that you might know Him more personally. You might have more accurate, biblical, God-revealed thoughts about God himself. That's what I want. And we have to be honest. If we grow in our thoughts about God and they become more biblical, more right, more true, more accurate, less impacted by the things of this world or Satan or our flesh, then guess what? Everything else starts to fall into line better in our life. Our relationships, those things that are horizontal in life. And so many times you hear Christians get so busy about the Christian life and they get so horizontal and they almost don't know how to operate vertically. They don't know how to think about God that way. But when you begin to make that a habit, when you begin to operate and live by faith in that way, where you can go to God face to face by faith and meet with him, and he meet with you and speak to you? Oh, he has so much to show you. And it may not have anything to do with what you think you need to know. But it's everything that you really do need to know. And he'll prepare you. He will prepare you. So we need him. What I want to do is uh, do a running start uh, up into our passage. But I'm going to assume, bear with me for a minute, I'm going to assume that as a group, we don't know a ton of the major things that have happened leading up to this point. Maybe you're a first-timer. Maybe you're someone who's just kind of going, okay, well, I don't even know where you're talking about, Kyle. 
yeah, you can talk to me about God, that's fine, but history, geography, I don't know where we're going. Let me help you. God creates heaven and earth. You're like, whoa, that far back, Kyle? Yeah, Genesis 1, the very beginning. Mankind falls into sin. God curses the earth. Everything changes. But God promises to do something about their fallen and cursed state by a descendant, singular, masculine, descendant of Eve, someone to be born from her line, a human being, male. After some time, God speaks to a man named Abram, later Abraham. God tells him and his wife Sarai, later Sarah, to move. So they move from a place called Ur and they go to Canaan. They don't know where they're going, but they're following by faith. They settle into their new homeland, the land of Canaan, modern-day Israel. God promises to bless his family line in this particular land. He doesn't have any kids yet, so it seems, again, another test of faith. Uh, What land? What family? My wife's barren. We're late in years. God tells him that he has a plan to do something about the curse on the earth, in fact, God tells Abram that one of his descendants, specifically, is going to be the descendant of Eve that's going to impact the curse, and it's going to change everything, and it's going to bring salvation, blessing to all the families of the earth. Well, Abraham, fast forward, has Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac has Jacob, Esau. This is summary fashion, guys. Jacob, later named Israel, had 12 sons, and they began to, as a family, grow. God is faithful to his promise in the land, but a famine comes. They can't live there. Very agricultural. They have to move for a time. So Jacob takes, or his his 12 sons go out of Canaan and they go to Egypt where there is food because there's the Nile. The Nile always brings a source of life and food and they can live there for a time. And God works through his providence and mystery, wonderful ways to bring them there and they grow. While they're there, Abraham's descendants, his extended family as it's extending and growing long after his life, now known as the Hebrews, grow large. In fact, so large that a new pharaoh, king of Egypt, looks at them and and, uh, has them uh, enslaved because he's afraid that they're going to grow up so big in his own land that they're going to overtake them. They remain there for some time, 400 years. Abraham's descendants in a foreign land, not in the promised land that God moved them to. 400 years before a certain Hebrew, Moses, is born, through a series of miraculous events, plagues poured out that all the world is talking about and still is today, God works through Moses to deliver the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt, out from under that godless Pharaoh, and the nations watch as this Hebrew people emerge as a new nation. God promises to lead them back to the promised land that Abraham's descendants were to inhabit. He is faithful to his promise. I think there is a, on the next slide there, Chris can give it a click. Um, This may be helpful or not, depending on how much light is up there washing it out. Um, But if you're following that red line from Egypt down here, Mount Sinai would be at the bottom, and then up into where Jerusalem, Jericho, some of those cities would be right at the door of Canaan. Okay, so hundreds of thousands of Hebrews uh, are there now exiting, that's why the book of Exodus is called the Exodus, uh, exiting from 
from Egypt, and they're going across the desert wilderness, very rocky, very dry, not a place to live, so they're traveling on their way to Canaan. The people stop at the foot of a mountain, the Mount Sinai, where God said he would meet with them. So a pit stop, much like an ancient Bucky's, with nothing of Bucky's there, um, but uh, where the Lord then talks to Moses on the mountaintop. And he says, no one else can come up the mountain except for you. You're the only one that can stand between me and the people. So Moses is the designated mediator and nobody else can go and talk to God, hear from God, then go to the people, talk to the people about what God has said. So he has an arrangement and he talks to Moses on that mountaintop and he gives the Ten Commandments written on tablets of stone and several others after that along with it. Many commandments for the people to know how to live. If they are God's not just person and family, but now nation, they need something to live by, to look different than the other nations or else they're just going to look like any other nation. And what does it matter if you have your God or this God or the other God? So the law is given. The law is given. Well, Uh, At a particular time in the book of Exodus, the people get impatient with Moses. They're like, he's having a really long, quiet time up there. And, And I'm getting antsy. The people think it wise to make an image of God to worship. And so they take all the gold that they had and they melt it and they cast it into a golden calf, a cow, as their God. Now, while Moses is functioning as their mediator, he comes down and finds out that they're worshiping something that was created by hands, and actually it is an image of something that was also created to be a source of food, not the creator, not the one who gives the food, but the created, and this apostasy of the people, turning their backs on the God who's delivered them in a magnificent way out of Egypt. Moses, his heart is like, what are you doing? He, he just throws the tablets down. He goes to them, confronts them. Aaron, what are you doing? I left them in your charge and you helped them with this. And so he goes back to God and God's going to, of course, God's going to smoke him. He's going to just, it's over. You don't want me as God. I've delivered you through magnificent means, been merciful to you. And you're going to turn your back on me. And Moses appeals and says, no, please do not utterly wipe them out. The Lord relents and shows patience, forgiveness, mercy for their sin. Outside the camp, down at the foot of Mount Sinai, Moses would go into a tent called the tent of meeting with the Lord and talk with him as a man would speak to a friend face to face. Very close, very close, intimate Moses knew that they needed the Lord to go before them and forgive their sin or else they would never make it successfully to the promised land. They would all die in the wilderness and it would be a failed mission and all the late nations would laugh at the God who tried to deliver his people but then they went their own way and he let them just go and die. And so he prayed a particular prayer. Look at chapter 33. Verse 18. Exodus 33, 18, Moses said, please, show me your glory. Weary by their sin, by the long travels, by the late days and weeks up on the mountain with the Lord, 
and knowing that he needed encouragement and the Lord's presence to be with them if anything good is going to happen. He, as a mediator, goes to God and asks for God to show him his glory, his greatness. This leads us up to our our first way to behold the greatness of God, and it's going to be in the very beginning of our text in chapter 34, where he answers that prayer. We read in verse 1 of 34, up to our first filling. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the, in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and went up on the Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. Check this out. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of their fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. The first way you see God's glory here is by seeking his presence. I think that is... uh, To seek his presence. This is what you see, this mediator, this example of someone who had a relationship, a very intimate and close relationship with God, seeking the presence of God. Reveal to me who you are. Draw near to me so I can know you better. Give me a glimpse into who you really are. Help me to know you personally and in a deeper way. When he asks for God to show him his glory, the word glory in Hebrew is kavod, and it just means weightiness or significance. He's saying, press upon me all that you are. I want it. Lay it on. Show me. Of course it's weighty. If you were to put any other God, deity, or man-made God on the scales, there's no weight at all to their significance. But the Lord alone is a God of glory. So he says, show me. I believe it. Show me. And so this request is an interesting one as we consider who is welcome in the presence of God. If we were to say, seek his presence, you could say, well, begin to tell me about who God is and then I'll know if I'm actually welcome there. As we read earlier, or mentioned earlier, uh, the, before the fall of mankind into sin, Adam and Eve were in God's presence in the garden. In Eden, when they sinned, it says they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees. In G- Genesis 3.8, the Lord God sent 
him from the garden, this is later, talking to Adam and into, into Eve, sent from the garden of Eden, he drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So when sin came, it separated God from man. And God's presence was not something that was a commodity. It was not something that he could just go back into, walk back into the garden saying, I came back. No, slice, you're dead. Uh, It doesn't work that way. You've made a choice in your one sin to declare war against and to be a rebel against God's authority, his lordship, and to think for yourself that you are God. Well, who else could we look at that would, that would help us kind of begin to answer this question? Who belongs in the presence of God? Moses, uh, later on, when he was tending sheep in the wilderness of Midian, the Lord called out to him at Horeb, the mountain of God. He appeared to him out of the perpetually burning bush. So this was miraculous, a bush that was burning, but it was not being consumed And God said, do not come near. He says, Moses. And he goes, here I am. He says, don't come near. (laughs) It's kind of like, hey, I want to get your attention. Be careful. Uh, And he says, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He told Moses when he's going to send him to go do his work of rescuing the people out of Egypt, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And so you ask the question, who belongs in the presence of God? Well, no one who is sinful. No one who is sinful belongs in the presence of God because he is holy. God is holy, and sin does not lightly come into his presence without him dealing with it seriously. Just flip through the pages of your Old Testament and see, uh, do the people of Israel belong on Mount Sinai when the Lord descended in thick cloud and thunder and lightning to talk to Moses? No, they did not. Do the people who are not Levitical priests later belong in the tabernacle doing worship things? No, they do not. Do unclean things belong in God's camp? No, they do not. Do mutilated, mangled, and diseased animals belong on God's altar? No, they do not. Do lepers belong in the camp? No. Do pagan idols belong in the temple of God? No. Do pagan people groups belong in God's holy land? No. Does grumbling and complaining belong in the mouths of the people who have just been delivered from Egypt? No. Do the sacrifices of half-hearted worshipers belong in God's festivals? No. Do idols belong in the hearts of the elders of God's people? Does a king other than the Lord himself belong in Israel? No. Does the Ark of the Covenant belong with the Philistines? No. Does drought and famine belong in the promised land that is to flow with milk and honey? No. Does a man with a divided heart between God and women and wealth like Solomon belong as Israel's king? No. Does the final copy of God's law belong in the rubble of the temple ruins when they're later destroyed in their land? Does the abomination of desolation belong in the future temple to make a mockery of God? No. Do the people of God belong as captives in foreign lands like Egypt and Babylon and Assyria? No. Do false prophets belong in leadership in Israel? No. 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 
God is holy, holy, holy. You cannot miss that. You cannot have a different concept of God in your mind if you want to just quickly get to his love and jump over his holiness. That is not the right view of God. You have to understand that he is categorically different than us. That's what holy means. He is categorically different than us as God. There is a creator-creature distinction. He is holy. We are not. This also means that he is set apart from all sin. And we learn repeatedly that from the very beginning, we are sinners who sin sinfully. And he is holy, holy, holy. So, seek his presence. What does the heart cry? I can't. I'm not welcome there. And it makes sense, because how could I, knowing who God is, and knowing who I am, and the sin in my life? Ah, but there is a way. There is a way. We have a chance, and the only way is for us to just reminisce again about how Moses even got there in the first place. So here Moses was, after he had left Egypt, he had murdered an Egyptian man out of a scuffle there. Yeah, you say it was self-defense, so he was okay. Still, he fled Egypt as a fugitive. You say it was a bad land, so of course he could be a fugitive from there, still. And probably had no intention to return to Egypt to help the rest of the Hebrews, his people, to escape or to get out. So he's a fugitive, a defector, a murderer. He was lost. And for a time in Moses' life, he was in Midian. Where's Midian? It's nowhere. It's in the middle. And he's out there tending to sheep. He wasn't seeking God. He wasn't seeking God's presence. He was running. He was confused. He was hurt. All kinds of things spun him around growing up as an Egyptian, but being a Hebrew, a little bit of confusion there, I'm sure, uh, and, and just not knowing or knowing and not doing. But... God called out to him from the burning bush, a holy picture of a high and lifted up God that he could not come to him lightly, and he came to him on God's terms. That's how you can begin to seek God and seek his presence, if you come to him on his terms. If he has called you out of your sin, out of your sinful lifestyle, out of your sinful choices, and whatever has been there in your life. And he has called you with the gospel call for you to repent and turn away from that and to find him to be more delightful and pleasurable than anything that you've tasted before. Then he is always in your presence. And you are always in his. And this is really the foundation of how you can actually fulfill this command and, and complete this. Seek his presence. Well, because God is not just holy, but merciful, we can. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So he's made a way. He's made a way for us to come into his presence. He's made a way for him to come into our lives. Now, once God has entered into our lives, what do we do as people who are called out, rescued, redeemed, made clean, and welcome in his presence? If that describes you, you always want to go to the presence of God. You never want to leave. 
You want to find out how much more can I get of God? He's already been sovereign in grace and kind and mercy to bring me out of my sin and into relationship with him through the work of Jesus Christ. Now I want to go to him. In a similar way, that's what was going on with Moses. God had a purpose for Moses, much like God has a purpose for you, and it's not to stay in your sin, in your wandering, and in your vain pursuits. It's to do something much more, and it's to show you his glory all day, every day, for you to walk with him, and see him, and to know him, and to adore him, and to praise him, to walk by faith with him, and be obedient to his word. Moses got that. Look at chapter 33, verse 7. 33, 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord, there's a seeking. Everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. When Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up. Picture that. Moses going into the tent of meeting where he's going to meet with the Lord. And everybody in the camp kind of stands at attention out of respect and looking. And each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. Now people saw this, and they would rise up and worship. Verse 11, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. As a man speaks to his friend. Wow, do you, do you relate to God that way? Do you look forward to talking to him, hearing from him, walking daily with him, sitting down intentionally to spend time with him? <laughs> you can't do that if you don't have faith, right? Because what are you doing? Talking to a wall, talking to a ceiling, talking to yourself. But if you have been changed and you have a relationship with him, God has called you then you have access to his presence and it's meant to be close, not distant, not far. And that's why he prays, please show me your glory. So first point, to seek his presence, the first way we see God's glory, it is there where he descends and where he has called us to meet with him. Second is to hear his word. I want to look at chapter 34, Verse 5 and 6, I've put a little letter after the verses there to show you what portion of the verses I'm talking about. Uh, chapter 5 uh, is, is, or sorry, uh, verse 5 is the second portion, uh, and then verse 6 is the beginning. So he said, the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. So that's the portion that I'm looking at here is the word Proclamation. He's proclaiming something. And this is what he said he would do. Right after he prayed, please show me your glory, in verse 18 of the previous chapter, the Lord said to him, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, or Yahweh. So, so the Lord answers his prayer. He says, yes, I will show you my glory. It's going to be in the form of a proclamation. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. That just shows his prerogative to save, save who he wills and to reveal himself to who he wills. And he says, but he said, you cannot see my face, for a man shall not see me and live. 
And what he's saying there is, you cannot see me in my fullness or you will die. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place. He's like, there is a way where I can show you my glory. By me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. So when you seek God's glory and when he grants that because you are one of his children and you walk by faith and he is pleased to reveal himself to you, it is in the form of proclamation. And here it is something for the eye and the ear. It is something to, for him to see but also to hear and more importantly to hear. Because this is what he does. And in fact, in chapter 34, that was the plan. What's emphasized is, yes, the Lord descends on the cloud, but it doesn't unpack and then recount the details of how cool it looked that God did a parkour over a rock and Moses was like, oh, I got to see his backside go by. You know, like that wasn't the major deal. The theophany wasn't the like wow thing to hold on to and to go right home about. What was the thing that was emphasized was the proclamation. You need to learn something about me. You need to know something about me. You need to hear something about me. And guys, this is not so different than where we are today. What do we need to know about God in order to understand him correctly, to know him more intimately? We need to hear his word. We need to hear what he has said to us about himself. And there's a special way that he does that. In Moses' time, this was a special way that he proclaimed the name of the Lord, what his name stood for, who he was, what kind of things he does, and how he relates to him. For us, we have the completed word of God. This is beautiful because what this is is, is no longer being written and compiled and collected, but we have God's word, his many proclamations through many authors compiled for us to get to know who he is. And so when we read his word, that's the way that we understand who God is and we see his glory there. And let me be ultra clear about something. There is an inseparable link between the written word of God and the living word of God. John chapter 1 makes this so clear. And if you've missed this, then you're probably in a bad spot long-term as a Christian to just think, well, I just got to keep reading my Bible. I just got to keep reading my Bible. I just got to keep reading my Bible. I would just ask back to you, are you even meeting with God when you read your Bible? What do you think this is about? Is it even personal to you? John chapter 1 says that the Word, the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.14. The word became flesh. The proclamation, the revelation of God through word became wrapped up in flesh, embodied, walking, living, breathing like us. This is beautiful. So, so if there's anything that this written word is going to communicate to us, guess what? It's a man. It's a person. You're meant to relate to him. Stop looking at your Bible in a different way. Go to your Bible and find Jesus. 
over and over and over. It's so cool when you get to that point where you're like, you're reading this passage in the Old Testament and you're going, man, I, that's really wild how that seems to relate to what Jesus said. Jesus, in fact, Jesus spoke about that. And, and you know what? He, and you just make all these connections. The whole Old Testament is all preparation for Jesus. The whole New Testament is all presentation of Jesus. The Bible in one word is Jesus. <laughs> When we, get to, when we get to heaven and we understand this thing better, he's going to be standing right in front of us. It's going to be awesome. Oh, man, to hear his word. Guys, stop listening to sermons the wrong way. Stop picking up your Bible and having quiet times the wrong way. We get so legalistic. We get so tied up in things that we think are important and are like the best for us spiritually. Do you love Jesus? Do you know his love for you? Can you believe how he loves you given the fact that he is a consuming fire in holiness and you are pitiful in sin? Total offense. <laughs> they say no offense sometimes. Uh, you know, that's, that's just who we are. Oh, thank you, Jesus. The gospel does not start in Matthew. The gospel is not stuck at the beginning of the New Testament. The gospel is beginning to end God's revelation of himself and his plan through his son Jesus to us on every page of scripture. That's how you need to hear the word. Come to it that way. And in a way, <laughs> what did Moses get? He got the word wrapped in flesh before he was wrapped in flesh, passing by in a cleft of a rock. Like a, like a preview of Jesus, a glorified Jesus before he took on flesh. You're like, wow, what did I just see? Mm, just wait, just wait. And then here comes Jesus. So that's the way to hear the word of God and hold the word of God like this. Now, third, um, know his name. Know his name is another way to see God's glory. He proclaims, right? But what does he proclaim? It says in verse 5, he proclaimed the name of the Lord. That's his own name. That's kind of like, you know, we all had school this past week, right? And uh, most, a lot of you had teachers. And let's go around the room and tell everybody your name and tell us something about yourself. And we'll meet and greet or something. And, and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, my name's the Lord. Oh, if you missed it, the Lord. Uh, a God. Merciful and gracious, slow to anger. And he starts giving who he is. Well, we need to know his name. His name is tied with his attributes because this is all one message. But I just think it's beautiful to see the Lord, the Lord. This totally relates back to Exodus chapter 3 when Moses was at the burning bush when he first met this guy. Met God. Met this God. And God reveals to him there... The name that he should go back to Pharaoh with is I am that I am. The eternally existent God, dependent on no one else. He is, and he doesn't depend on anyone else. And he is forever. And so it's this name that you're like, he's using a really, really simple verb like is to describe his name. There's so much profundity to that. There's so much depth to that of who he is. And so when he says the Lord, the Lord, essentially he's using that same verb, I am, I am, this is, this is it. 
He's, he's saying that he is that God who is eternally existent, dependent on no other God, no other deity, no other band of worshipers, cult worship, no other thing that could lift him up or make him a God. No, he, he's not dependent on people to take their jewelry off, melt it down and turn it and cast into something. That's why it was such an offense to him. He's like, I am. It, that thing can't say that. It just existed because you guys made it. It didn't even exist before that. So to know the name of the Lord is a way to behold God's glory. And you see it in Exodus chapter 3. You see it here in Exodus chapter 34. And guess what, guys? Launch into the New Testament. And why, oh, why is Jesus so careful in the Gospel of John to use the words, I am, so many times? Let that sit in if it hasn't before. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. When they hear him make these statements, they're like, he sounds like he's almost speaking like the same God that spoke to Moses on Sinai. The one who descended on the mountain in smoke and fire and terrified all of us and we weren't even on the mountain. Could this really be him before us? Well, you remember when they arrest Jesus, right? John 18, 4. They don't capture him. He surrenders himself to them. He says, when he sees Judas and the band come up, who do you seek? (laughs) He initiates. They answered him. That's how it works. They answer him. Right? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Like, well, why is that significant that he would say that? Oh, just pass over. I don't know. Simple use of a verb, maybe. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. John 18, 6. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell on the ground. <laughs> There's power in the name of Jesus. Because he's not dependent on Oh, he needed Joseph. He needed Mary to exist. No, no, he did not come into existence on Christmas Day. (laughs) That's not what happened. He has forever been the Lord, the Lord, the God who is merciful and gracious, the God who spoke, spoke to Moses. Learn his attributes is number four. Learn his attributes Tied together with his name is the self-disclosure of who he is. You see a few of them listed. I'll just go over them quickly with you here. You've heard them before, but listen to how he says them. A God who is merciful or compassionate is another word for that. And gracious. So merciful and gracious. This means that he feels from the gut for you, from his bowels, from his insides when he sees someone who is hurting, when he sees the, the people being treated as slaves, you don't have an indifferent God sitting there kind of going, wonder when they're going to figure it out. No, he's hurting inside and just, oh, I, I want to help them. That's who this God is. He, is, he is. He's desiring to help those who are in misery, and he is gracious with those who do not deserve it. And secondly, he's slow to anger. If you were to take somebody and put them behind, you know, glass and observe them um, and have somebody go in there and make them really mad, really ticked off, and you're able to observe their face, uh, there's something on their face that would start to change when they get mad. Nostrils start to flare. They might get red even. 
And, and this is what this word means in Hebrew, slow to anger. It means long of nostril. <laughs> kind of a weird way to say it. But after you think about the idiom, you're like, oh, he's slow to become infuriated with you <laughs> for what you've done to him. He doesn't get to that place where you're like, oh, he's brimming over. He's about to just watch out. He's slow to that point. And how quick are we to snap back at somebody or to get seething inside or hold bitterness all day? And, and that is not our God. He's slow to anger, slow to become red-nosed, slow to become long of nostril. He's composed, merciful, and gracious, and abounding, third, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's an abundance in such a way that there is no end to it. Not only is it abundant, but when he says steadfast love, chesed, that word is best translated loyal love. It's a love that says, I'm not going anywhere no matter what you do. If you are mine, it's forever. It's a covenant of love. It's beautiful love. When you read loving kindness in your versions, it's better to just understand it as that loyal love steadfast, not going anywhere. He is faithful in the same way. And then fourth, uh, keeping steadfast love for thousands. That is like thousands of generations. It goes on and on and on. He will be steady, loyal in his love to his people, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Why iniquity, transgression, and sin? Three different words, they all mean totally different things. No, we just know that there are so many kinds of sin and God is faithful to forgive every single one of them. No matter what your brand of wrong is, he is faithful. He's faithful to forgive and to pardon. But check this out. In the middle of verse 7, it shifts, and he says, but who will by no means clear the guilty? So if you think for a second, oh, God is a pushover. <laughs> wow, okay, you can just kind of sin as much as you want, and he's just going to keep taking it on the chin. Okay, well, that's, that's a great deal. If we've got God, who's going to do that with us? No, he makes it very clear that while he is loving and he is merciful, he is also just and righteous. That's what you see here, just and righteous. I love that he includes that because it balances out and it helps you not have a wrong view of God again, right? If we were to only think of God as a God who is forgiving and loving and we go, wow, I know he was a, a holy God and he dealt with things in a serious way, um, but if he's just going to keep loving and not really hold me you know, accountable for anything, then I'm going to keep sinning. No, that is not the right track of thinking because your God, the true God, the God who has revealed himself here and who we're seeing glory as we understand him better, is the one who takes sin seriously. If you're the person who's the guilty, that means you have not yet been forgiven. That means you're going on in your sin. That doesn't mean you're someone who is saved and you sinned and he's coming for you. This means that you've gone on in your sin and you think that you can get away with it. You will not get away with it. He will visit even that sin. If that sin pattern and habit gets passed along to your kids and their kids and goes on and on, God is fuming against that. He is going to visit that. And he's not going to be kind of like a knock, knock, knock. Hey, how's it going in here? Right? It's not that kind of visit. It's a visit that you're not going to want. It's justice. It's righteousness. Because that's who our God is. 
So understand the attributes, learn the attributes of God, and it will help you understand his glory. The last point here is to give him worship. Give him worship. Look at verse 8. And Moses, what did he, how did he respond? Well, he quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. <laughs> Moses, you asked for it. Please show me your glory. What did you expect? Oh, this could not end in any other way. How could he continue to stand in God's presence when God passed before him and reveals to him his name, reveals to him all that he is, and then him to stand there and kind of go, that was cool, see you tomorrow in the tent. It's like, no, man, he goes down. He's like, oh, gosh, I'm so relieved to hear that because I and my people are great sinners. The calf thing, I'm so sorry. Oh, but you abound in love for your people. Oh, thank you. So it's a right position to go down when you understand someone who is so high and elevated and holy and merciful. There are so many examples throughout the scriptures of this that the only logical thing to do when you hear about who God is and he's revealed that to you and it's actually true about him that you respond in worship. That's why even one simple illustration of in our youth ministry when we start to sing and we come in out of you know what kind of a week or Wednesday or Sunday morning it's been, it's hard to just kind of cold start it and just start singing. Uh, we, we usually just start with a scripture reading. So you let God address us correct some thoughts, get us engaged with him. And then you start thinking, and maybe just that little like reminder of who God is. And you come into that song just a little bit differently and you're just like, I want to sing these lyrics. Because I've forgotten. I've been wrong-minded. And that is an appropriate method for the church to follow. The hearing and responding to God's word. And it must be a life of worship. It must be apparent. Let me just end with this, because you've got these examples of uh, seeking his presence, hearing his word, knowing his name, learning his attributes, giving him worship that he is worthy of, that glorifies him. What have we got to take away? I want to give you this, this one passage. I believe it's on the next slide there. Okay, just 2 Corinthians 4, 3 to 6, and I want to commend this to you as you consider how it relates to the exact thing that we've talked about. In this Old Testament text, up a rocky hill where God met with Moses face to face in an extraordinary way. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And Paul has been talking about Moses and him going up, meeting with the Lord, coming down, and having a glowing face after it. And so his, he had a veil over his face when he talked to people when he came down the hill, came down the mountain. And then in chapter 4, he says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. That's talking about Satan. He's blinded your mind to see him like he is. To keep them from seeing what? What does Satan want to keep you from seeing? What is it that's kind of like, oh, I don't want them to think about this. I don't want them to think about it. I don't want them to, I don't want them to think rightly about this. It is the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Light is like revelation, just into the darkness of the gospel, this good news message of God sent from heaven to earth about the glory of no other than Christ, the Messiah, the promised one that was sent 
to go be Eve's descendant, Abram's descendant, and one who would take up the law that no one could obey, given to Moses, and he would be the one to do it. Verse 5, for what we proclaim, Paul says, is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Jesus Christ is Yahweh. Jesus Christ is the I am. Jesus Christ is the eternal God. Jesus Christ is him. Do you know it? Do you see it? Is it, is it clear now? And ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, and this goes back to the beginning, kind of where we started, creation. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. There was nothing, right? But God just spoke and light came. Has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So I want to just compel you, encourage you to learn to pray, show me your glory, and expect to see Jesus. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for today. We're grateful for your word and how it challenges us, convicts us, encourages us, and ultimately shows us Jesus. Show us our need for him. If there's anyone in here with a veil over the heart that they're trying to listen with this morning, Lord, would you by your grace call them, remove the veil, and help them to have something of light enter in where they can see the truth of their Savior, their Lord, the one and only Lord, the Lord who is the God who is wrapped in flesh, and his name is Jesus. Lord, help us to not just know him, but to know him intimately, personally, and to walk with him and to tell others about him, to show off your glory to this world. That's worth living for. Lord, would you do that for your own namesake? And we would be your servants to that end. In your name, amen.